Good afternoon and welcome to the latest edition of Lunchtime Learnings, even though it's on a Monday today. I'm very excited to be joined by Peter Tobin, who has had and still has a very distinguished career in the state agency. Um, Peter, I'm going to ask you to share your incredible story of how you got into agency and then sharing your massive successes. I've had the most enjoyable last 25 minutes um, chatting to you and I'm so excited about what you're going to what you're going to say and how you're going to help everybody today so thank you everybody um, for tuning in um, for whether you're watching it now whether you're watching it on replay um, that'd be great if you can let us know that you are here um, say hello to Peter give Peter some likes some shares some loving particularly like smiles so if there's some smiles on there please do that that'd be great Peter thank you so much for your time thank you for joining us day um so tell everybody a bit about yourself how you became an estate agent um and then we would delve a bit deeper and ask you a few more questions okay. my, my father was an estate agent as, as well uh he died unfortunately when i was uh, 13 and he was about to go into business with someone else who then said to me if you became qualified i will give you a job so I went down to Bristol Tech, now uh, West of England University or something, and did the RICS course. <sighs> Passed intermediate, couldn't stand it. I was never going to plot around with dry run. So I left, um, bummed around, hitchhiked down to Spain, hitchhiked around the UK, just did odd jobs and just lived on my wits. Till I was about 22, 23, I can't remember really. And I thought, I need to get a job. So I looked at the local paper and Gascoigne P's were advertising for a junior negotiator at Walton on Thames. So I phoned up, right? I said, hi, Pete Tobin, you know, uh, so you've got to um, advertise, can I come and see you? So they said, well, how old are you? So I told them, you know, 22, 23. Do you have a car? No. Can you drive? Yes. Then they said, well, look, you, unfortunately, we're looking for somebody more junior than you, so I don't think you're going to fit. So I said, fine. I totally understand, right? But supposing I'm the best you've ever seen. And I get a job working opposite you, and every day you see me, and every day I'm selling your stock, right? Because you didn't spend 10 minutes with me. Barry Jarvis is a guy I talked to who was fantastic. Unfortunately, died in his early 30s from cancer. Um, so quiet for about two minutes. They said, okay, come see me in two hours' time. So I went to see him, right? And I said, look, I tell you what I do, I'll work for 10 pounds a week, right? For, for four weeks. If I'm no good after four weeks, you can throw me out, right? I think I, within um, was it six, seven months, I was, they opened up the Weybridge office and I became the, a manager. And I was doing, at that point, I think about 30 sales a month. So when I first started, I was young, I knew nothing from nothing. But one thing we'd learned when I was at college was economics. I learned about Keynes and about the impact interest rates have on inflation and inflation interest rates. So I started to learn a bit more about the market. I took a view that why should somebody listen to what I've got to say? I'm going to talk, try and persuade them to buy the biggest thing they've ever bought, right? The, the investment is, is, is mammoth. Why should they listen to me? I couldn't think of a reason. So I started to learn about the housing market and what's going to happen and what happened in the past. And no matter what the applicant wanted to talk about, I started talking about the market. And I suddenly found people wanted to talk back to me and suddenly they would listen to what I had to say. And when I said, this is what you should be doing, they suddenly started doing it. And I was rocking these sales out. So I then took a view that I was going to treat the applicants because I, even then it's David's had a bad reputation. So I was going to treat the applicants the way I wanted to be treated. I'm going to treat the vendor the way I would want to be treated as a vendor. Right? And what the applicants want is they want to be led. They don't want somebody to turn around and say, I've got a new instruction to look at it. Right? Yeah, go away. They want somebody to give them. Why should the applicant have to waste months of their life, hours of their life, viewing properties they're never going to buy, to find out what their money gets them, where they can get it, and what the feasibility is? So I learned to qualify people, but qualify people in a way they enjoyed, like having a conversation. So by qualifying, and, and why I mean qualifying, so I could say to them, yes, you can get what you want. These are the streets you can get me, and this is what's going to cost you. Right or no, you for what you want. This is what's going to cost. This is what I can get for you. So I actually guiding them into here, yeah, and I never lied to them, and I didn't know whether they're going to buy through me or somebody else. But it creates a very good reputation. So I was doing a say in a day. 
because I took a view, if I'm here if in the office for nine or ten hours a day, why shouldn't I do a sale a day? God, it's the only selling job I know when you've got applicants phoning you. There's no cold calling. So I became manager of uh, Weybridge. And the mistake I made is I was the youngest person there, is I let the, the older negotiators, been in business a long time, do their thing. And I realized after about six to eight weeks, this is nonsense. I'm the manager because I did more sales. So I'm going to force people to do it my way. <sighs> Off I went. Now, did they like it? No, they didn't. Did I meet resistance? Did I ever? But when I tripled their salary, yeah, then suddenly everybody was very happy. But yeah, but they were going to do what I the way I did it, right? So eventually, I was offered a partnership. I guess my peeve, but it was a junior partnership, right? And that Barry was always going to run it. He was, you know, quite an extraordinary character, right? And he taught me. That really that you should talk to many people as possible during the day. He was one who really got me on that thought process, but not how to use that telephone call more wisely. So <clears throat> I resigned, right? So, so they said, well, have you done another job? I said, no, of course not. I mean, if you hadn't offered me the partnership, I wouldn't have resigned, right? So they gave me six months to find, you know, to find another job, which normally gets thrown out on the next day. So I went to a company called Sturgis in Putney, Sturgis and Sun. Right, uh, the best they'd ever done was seven sales for, for the month that, that year. Right, <coughs> after 10 days, the owner, George Sergius, moved from Putney and went to, to, to Chiswick. No one talked to me, the entire company. Right, my own staff won't talk to me either. Right, but the first Christmas party, which is about three months after I joined. Nobody, I was there in the corner. I was just tipping. I was, oh, I got absolutely hammered. Right? I fell down the steps into, into Hyde Park um, Station, right? But I held my nerve. Then suddenly we were doing, the first month we did 28 sales. Second month we did 34 sales. And by the fifth month, we were doing 50 sales a month. By the time I finished there, we were doing 80 sales a month from an office, which is 10 foot wide. You know, people are queuing out the door. Right? At that point, I became one of the senior partners, and therefore I put my ideas into the entire company. Right? So, can, so can I can I can I move into Sorry. what you just said there? So, what were you doing to go from you know seven sales a year to doing 50, 60, 70 sales a month? Because that's that's incredible. Well, I qualified the app because we gave every applicant best advice. We treated every applicant as if they were the only person. I'm a great believer in marginal gains. I mean, Dave Brailsford talks about it all the time, the guy who ran around British Cycling. You know, there's not one clever idea, right? It's about doing everything that tiny bit better. And it's about, you know, just getting people to answer the phone properly. Because we do it all day long, we don't think about it. So, hello, Foxons, uh, can I help you? Yeah. <laughs> If you walk into a shop and you're not well treated, do you do you walk out or do you buy something? You walk out. Why do people think we're any any, any different? So it's it's down to the small things. It's it's how to qualify people. Qualifying people is not three bedrooms send me in a good location. It's understanding exactly where they want, but doing it in a free user friendly way so the public enjoy the conversation. Every now and then, people you say to me, "Well, why do you want to know all this?" And I say to them, "Because you've got a choice, mate." You come out of being with me and I'm perfectly charming, right? And I'll waste three hours of your life. Or you can help, you help me to help you and I'll find you where you want to live. And it, so it, it was just those simple things. But call it, so I used to look at the applicant cards every single day to make sure that every single applicant was well qualified. And the hard thing is when things are going very well at both surgeons and say Foxons, is to maintain it because then people get blasé and it comes from the top. And you've got to have that passion that every single um, applicant is, that could be you. And would you put up with that treatment? And if you wouldn't put up with the treatment, why should they? Now, most selling jobs, it's a high energy young people, right? But unfortunately, as you get older, the energy goes. I'm no nowhere near as energetic as I was 20, 30 years ago, right? So suddenly most salespeople, by the time they're in their early 30, 30s, their career is over. And this is one of the very few jobs where there is a genuine skill, right? It's like how to negotiate a sale. We go to the shops in this country, we pay the price. We don't negotiate. Then suddenly you're negotiating a multi-million pound deal. 
and you should hear the nonsense. You know, I've, I put an offer in the house years ago, and the agent phoned me back and said, "No, sorry, you're, you know, the offer's not accepted. You need more. You need more." I said, "How much?" He said, well, "I can't tell you." I said, "Well, okay, I'll give you a pound." He said, "That's not enough." I said, "How much do you want?" And then I said, "Can we stop playing games?" You know, this is an adult conversation. How much does your client want? And he wouldn't tell me. I put the phone down. Right? So it's everything like that. So anyway, so what I, the first valuation I went on, the first morning I was there at Putney, it was a flat in um, Hill Court. Um, and they were all the market, with 13 on the market, all the same price, you know, 12, 12, 750 or 13, somewhere around there. So I went to see the client, the, the, the guy, because the, the, the star said, yeah, it's definitely worth 13,000. I went to see it, 9,950. Got on the market, nine, explained to him what happened to the market, explained to them why the market's falling, explained what will happen in the future, and said, if I can get you a four-bedroom house for 16,000, would you sell this for 10,000? He said, yeah. I said, fine. I'll put it on the market, 9,950. So we sold it the next day. right? So I went through the whole of these, we had 13 of these, we got all down to 9,950, and we sold them all. But I gave everyone best advice. You know, if you're going to say to somebody, your house is not worth the money, somebody should have the courtesy explain to them why it's not worth the money and the benefit of coming and bringing the price down. Because if there is no benefit, why should they do it? It's like when you're negotiating a sale. If there's no benefit to the vendor to take less, why should he? If there's no benefit to the applicant to, take, to, take, to pay more, why should he? 100%. So, you know, so you know, suddenly you get a reputation. So we was, did this and we got a reputation. So the staff said to me after about two weeks, uh, you're ruining our reputation. I said, you haven't got one. <laughs> I spoke, you know, we've got 300 properties available. I've talked to your clients. They all think you're a bunch of idiots. Don't tell me we're ruining your reputation. But they, they bought it. By the Christmas time, they, they had bought into what I was doing because they suddenly realized with their salary for the first time was positive. But no one else in the company was talking to me. I mean, absolutely, I was, you know, not a soul, quite weird. Um, and I was talking to George Sturgeon's secretary or years afterwards. And she said, George thought you were going to ruin the company. And that's why he left Putney and went to Chiswick. So he, was, so he wouldn't be, be tired with your brush. So we turned this company around, which is very old-fashioned, into something, you know, quite spectacular. So in 1979, I turned it for 480,000. We were selling flats to 20 grand in those days. So we had a four-drawer filing cabinet full of sales. And if you didn't tie the sale up really well, you would fall through because I didn't have the time to actually check all the sales. But if you get the public on your side, you'll be amazed. I mean, I had a took house on years ago, and I knew who was going to buy it. So I phoned the lady up, no reply. Left the message for her. I phoned all the whole time, no message. Monday morning, letter on my desk from from her opens up with the name of her solicitors the name of the vendor solicitor and the price they'd agreed mrs gerarda so i phoned her up i said hi i'm glad you like the property and you'd like it who would you view it through she said through you i said no you didn't i said come on who would you view it through she said well i got your message we've been to malta we just came back went to see the outside tried to get into to the office but they were queuing out the door which is true i mean some on saturday morning at times i'd be handling six groups of people at the same time they were filling out their applicant card phoning up making their appointments and filling out the viewing book for me right so the, the, the other agent had a board on so i viewed it through them but i said to the owner i want to buy it right but i only want to buy it through peter so the owner said fine i only want to sell it through him well <laughs> Well, there's no point giving him the ring because he's busy, so they do it themselves. <laughs> if you're that good, that's what happens. And people go out of their way to deal with you. There you go. I've just had a comment from James. Absolutely love this. Tom McGee said gold. Carly, if you don't ask, you don't get right. Um, hello, Sarah. Hello, Vicky. Hello, Heidi. Hello, Amy. Hello, Ross. Thanks very much for joining us. People are absolutely loving this, Peter. So thank you. Keep going. <laughs> Well, nothing I say is clever. You know, there's nothing I say you can't do. Right? So, you know, it's just something simple, right? 2008, even the Americans call it the Great Recession. We had the, the financial crisis. And yet London was the, about the only city in the world which had a housing, you know, a, a housing boom. And when I used to ask owners and you know, people, why is housing rise in London rising? Nobody could tell me. 
Nobody works out what was happening. They just accepted it. But I mean, when you know, we, historically, when house prices reach an uh, average income, average house price six to one, it crashes. Crashed in '73, crashed in '88, six to one, three to one, it booms. It's nine to one at the moment. Right? Um, so nobody wants to find out why things happen, and I don't understand it. I mean, strange enough, more people lived in London in 1930 than in 1975. Yeah, that London, um, the actual population of London has gone up 27% in 30 years, which is why you see the housing prices go up, which is why London is getting up 15, 16% per annum, and the rest of the UK is getting up 1 or 2%. If it, it, yeah. so, so what prompted that? I wasn't sure. I still think it's probably when the euro came in in 96, 97, right? A lot of companies moved to the, to London, right? Because they weren't sure how the, whether the euro would work or not, so they have the base outside. So suddenly jobs were created in London. A lot of people from from Europe were coming across, right? And, you know, we, they were interviewing the CEO of Google. Why have you spent 850 million pounds on, on a new site in London? He said, because that's where the talent is. So because the talent came here, because the jobs were here, other companies followed suit. So suddenly you have this enormous exposure to the population. No other city in the world went up 27% in 30 years. Can I come back to you on something you've just said? Because Tom just asked a question. So um, if Tom agrees, it's not complicated, okay? But it's not easy to do consistently. So how do you do all these things and be consistent day in, day out, day in, day out? I train the managers. I, I don't believe, I don't understand companies have a training department and managers. Don't, don't understand it. Because otherwise, if you team to a training session three or four times a year, within 10 days, no matter how good the trainer is, they'll be back doing what they were doing. Right? You, there's no point. Somebody is in the, every company has got to say, this is what the company represents. This is how we want the public dealt with. Right? That's what I've always done in my life. So I did for Foxman's, my own company, and Sturgis and Gascon Peace, right? So I train the managers to train the staff. So, the, so this training is 24-7 because people don't change overnight and people are resistant to change. You know, I go to branches and people don't want to know. Even if they're not doing well, you know, they still think, you know, they won't accept the fact that it's them you know, not, not the market, it's them doing the job badly. It's like talking to owners who've got no instructions. It's not their fault. Well, again, all the public are telling you loud and clear, we don't want to deal with you. And yet you won't change what you're doing. So I train the managers how to motivate the staff on a daily basis, right? And I used to reckon when I was a manager, if I got up there and really motivated people, it would last about an hour. And then I could feel the temperature drop again. Then I'm back at my feet. And I'm reminding people every hour how I want the job done. What I said when I gave them an instruction, I didn't say phone, phone this through, get on with it. I explained them what I wanted them to say. Exactly with Foxons. You know, every quarter I explained to them how the market was going and what I wanted the people to say. Then I took the manager's aside and made sure, or tried to make sure that that was followed through on a daily basis. Right? When you drive to work in the morning, turn the radio off. What are you, why are you going to work? What's the object? Because if you're successful, it's fun. If you're having, you know, if you're not successful, it's miserable. The only place in the world is a salesman not selling. Right? So you, you think to yourself, right, what am I going to work to, work to do? How am I going to achieve it? And what am I going to do? So I arrive mentally ready to work. And off I go, yeah, on my feet. If you're having a bad day, put the phone down. Think about yourself. You've got a brain. Think about what you're meant to be doing and re reset and start again. Don't keep doing something which doesn't work. How are you going to be successful if, if you can't do that? So you have a lot of people in all selling jobs and the average salesperson has more money between 28 and 30 than any other time in their life. So by the time they're 30, they're on the downward path. Wow, that's miserable. They've got another 30 years of going downhill. Right? So, yeah, you know, you, 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 if you understand what you're trying to achieve, right? and if you keep reminds of how to do it, that's fine. But companies should be spending more time 
not with the trainers, but with the managers to train the staff to ensure how the owners see the business is actually put into practice. Otherwise, there's no point having training. Years ago, a training company phoned me up and said, you're trying to sell me a training course. I said, well, no, because within 10 days, they'll be doing about what they're doing. And he said, well, how do you think I make my money? And he's right, because yeah, he makes his money because people, he's a great trainer, but he knew full well he wasn't going to last forever. It took about six to nine months to actually get everything locked into people. So it became natural. Right? So just simple things about how to qualify, how to, you know, you know every single day. How to do a ring round. Most agents do a ring round so badly, it's cringeworthy. You know, it, it, the conversation goes, hi, it's Peter Tobin. How, you know, how, are you having a good day? Oh, thank you. Right? I've got a new instruction. Do a look at it. Go away, I'm at work. You know, they want somebody to explain to them. You know, if you had a good conversation with them previously, well, then there's a follow-on to that conversation with changing them, the price rate. By qualifying people, the amount of time I say to them, I know what you're after. I've got one, but this is what it's going to cost you. Oh, really? Where's that? Having a swarm of line 10 years earlier, they couldn't afford it. Yeah. So there's a few things I want to delve into. My dogs are going mad because they agree with everything you say. But plus also there's some of these at the door as well. So hopefully someone will come and um, answer it in a sec. But I want to talk about change. And hopefully you can still hear me with them. Yep. Let me go and shut them up one second. You... Um, you talk to the audience. You give them more gold. Be two seconds. Gold. It's about having pride in what you do. You know, if we have no pride in what you know, the whole industry has a bad reputation because we are no benefit to the, the public. If you've got no pride in what you do, if you don't want people to think you're the best, why do you think you're going to be successful at this? It is hard work. But the rewards, the financial rewards you get out of it, bearing in mind the qualifications required, are mammoth. You know, a good manager can earn, if you do it properly, you can earn £100,000 a year, can negotiate it, can earn more money than a qualified accountant or, or, or lawyer. But it is hard work. Nothing comes easy, right? But it, it, it's, wanting, it's, what you de it's wanting the public to think you're the best. It's every time you talk to them, it's wanting them to think, wow, this guy's good. Wow, this guy's you know is on my side. So once they want to deal with you, suddenly the instruction level starts from you. And rather than being invited with one or ten agents, you're you're going around as a manager. I was the most expensive agent in the town. I was taking more instruction than anybody else. And most of them were sole agents, right? I didn't care whether sole agency or not. Carl and I prefer taking on multi to make my staff keep keep you know working, right? Too many agents they take a sole agency on, it goes to the bottom of the pile. They start dealing with the multis first, which is crazy. Right? I did the opposite. So you know, if you get the public on your side, suddenly you're not going to give valuation, you're going to take the instruction. And she's teaching managers how to do an instruction because they do the valuations day in, day out. Do they do it well? No, most of them don't. You know, I mean, the last three houses I've sold, I, haven't had, I had four or five agents around. I didn't get one phone call follow-up to see what was going on. So what I did at Foxton's, when I... Although I was running the sales and letting the boxes, I took over the, the Chiswick Park as well, because that was a bit of a, of a mess. Right? So my first day there, I was told they did 130 calls a day, each each of them. Yeah, really? It's impossible. So I said, fine, on the call log, tell me how many how many calls go over, over five minutes. Right? Ten. Right? So we taught them how to do it. So I got, I gave the managers a choice, right? If within 28 days of having done the evaluation, it gets passed to Chiswick Park. And my team will then, the team there, will start to do it. So I would find out very quickly which manager was chasing up the evaluations before them. So the conversion rate suddenly went through the roof. Because they were doing the, they were, you know, they were doing the evaluation, you, you spent an hour, an hour and a half, which was way too long around the house in the first place, and you there's no follow-up, no nothing. You're mad. You know, you're waiting for somebody to give you instructions. It's an instruction-led business. If you don't get the instruction, you don't get the applicant. But you, the whole thing is creating this reputation. People, when was the last time you went to a dinner party and people didn't talk about houses? Yeah, they talk, yeah. yeah, it's all the time. People, you know, every applicant you take on, there's a very good chance they're going to be living somewhere close to where you work. Now, either they're going to tell their friends, great, these people are fantastic, or 
don't go there. This is just a waste of time. And if you really have that courage to treat everybody properly, you'll be amazed how quickly the reputation gets out. It takes a few months. It's cheap, but it, it, but it, it lasts. It, you know, it, it's deep. No point spending millions of pounds in advertising if the job's done badly, because all you're doing is showing people that you're bad at what you do. And in fact, it's, you're in, the, the downward path is even faster. Right? So I, years ago, some man said to me, well, why aren't you advertising my branch? And I said, well, why do I want to show the world I'm stupid? Right? When you start doing it, I tell you, then I'll start spending some money on it. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. I have to go to those lengths to make him understand what he was doing was wrong. I say to everybody, best advice I've got for you is if the person pays your salary asks you to do something, give it due consideration. Because if you don't, he may not pay your salary. And people don't think about it. That's the consequence. Look, you made serious changes at Foxton's. Yep. So, um, there's most probably a lot of people that are watching this thinking, and you talked about change earlier and how challenging it is to get people to change. So how did you manage to change the mindset of you know the people at Foxton's, the managers there to do the most incredible job that you did um with john hunt and, well, and rollings the the first friday evening meeting i went to i was absolutely shocked how most people just say no deals no deals no deals no deals no deals no deals oh one deal no deal no deal one deal it was like an oasis in a desert of nothing I couldn't understand how you can spend 50 hours a week for nothing, right? So, uh, originally, John said, "Okay, let, let's try you in the Batsy office with the lower, with the, with the uh, flat section, and see how you get on there." But I think in that first month, we improved the figures by 40 percent. And I said to everybody, "Yeah, you know, how long have you been here?" And they said, "Oh, two weeks, three weeks." How long do you expect to be here? Well, they most of you expect to be fired in the next six weeks, and that was the whole mindset of the company. So we so I sat them down and, and, and I was with this one group for so long, you know, all day. I made them change what they did. And every time they didn't, I charged them. Yeah. Until by the end of the month, the sales were up 40, 50%. So John said, okay, you'll let you loose on, on the rest of the um, lower, lower end. Now I was walking to branches and you hear people go, oh God, here we come. Yeah. So I chose one or two people in each branch who I thought had ambition and wanted, you know, people I would actually employ, somebody who I thought would actually would want to do well. And I focused on them. And as their sales suddenly went through the roof, right, then other people, well, next time I walked in their branch, somebody else say, hi, Peter, how are you? Oh, yeah, if you want to talk. And I, one by one by one, I went through the company. And it took about six to nine months. So what were you saying to these people? How to do a ring round every hour. This is where I want you to ask the questions. How to qualify people, right? You don't say to somebody, do you want to have a look at this? I mean, when I put the structure in, which is the structure of, the, of going, not going up to nine and 12 and two and four is was because when I was a negotiator, I read, you know, I realized I was the youngest person. And if I was going to succeed, I had to do more phone calls than anybody else, right? And in fact, the marriage Jarvis, he taught me that. But then I noticed when people were going out at 10 o'clock, most people would say, we can't do an appointment at 10, 10, 30. They do nothing between 9 and 10. They look busy, but actually start nothing. Get back 11, 11, 15, lunch at 12, nothing. So all morning, what have they done? Nothing. One being with one person. Wow. Then they wonder why they're not doing very well. So I decided I was going to stay in. And I did rather say to somebody, something simple, I'd rather say to them, when do you want to have a look at this? I would say, are you free at 12, 30? So I would set the time, Right. And there's no such thing as something we can't do at 10 o'clock. It's just nonsense, right? If they say, I'm going to do it at 10 o'clock, what they're really saying, I'm in the air, I'll have a look just in case, but I'm not going to buy it, right? So I wasn't going to go anyway, right? So by talking to more people and qualifying them, when I did a viewing, it was, right, a good chance of a sale. So most state agents seem to think old applicants, new stock, new applicants, old stock. And I explained to them, no, it's not. It's old applicants, old stock. So I started, you know, got this register out with, with, with them. I went through the register with, with them and then started identifying the ones which were saleable and explaining how to see, you know, how the type of person who's going to buy it and, 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 and how to do it and what price range to actually put it through. 
So most of my viewings were 10% more than the price on the card. So somebody said they could afford 100,000, I reckon they could afford 115, 120. Right? So I showed them what they wanted at 100,000 100, yeah, 100, and show them the one they're going to buy at 120 and see what, well, yeah, I get a bit out of them. But you've got to qualify them to be able to do that because they're not going to do everything at 120. How many people say, I want a two bedroom flat, but buy a studio? And nobody, you know, that's why when you say it was a three bedroom house, you know, close to the station with a good location, it's nonsense. They could be one of a dozen different properties. You've got to narrow it down. So I was with them. I said, look at these cards every single day and make sure that they were doing as I said. Right? And as they suddenly, you know, Friday, Friday, the people I was dealing with, they were the ones shouting at all figures. So they're getting up and up, up, up the board. They're the ones winning all the prizes and getting the 50 quid on Friday. And so slowly, everybody, you know, bought into it. Bought into the Tobinator. Well, yeah. Because this, 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 you wouldn't believe the problem I had on this 9 to 12, 2 to 4 business not going out. Everybody swore blind. There would be fewer, fewer uh, viewings, fewer sales, fewer everything else. The, yeah, the nonsense I listened to was unbelievable. But I was flying around the whole of Foxes, and God help them if I found them out. If they went for a cigarette, they're out one, one person at a time. They were going out four or five of them at a time for a cigarette. How long do you think they're out there for? Half an hour. Yeah, and they wonder why they're having a, you know, the time you get back in, it takes another 10 minutes to get ready to work. You wonder why you had a bad morning. You're allowed, you know, if you send them out one at a time, they're back in five minutes. Yeah, I was a smoker, I understood, but these are the rules. So I was flying around, and if, you, if they'd gone out, what the hell are they? And I understood that if I let one person go, they'd all go. You can't say to somebody who's doing well, okay, you can go out, but you can't. I mean, years ago, one of my top negotiators we used to come in late every day. Not long, five, six minutes late every day. So I took him up a cup of coffee. And I said, you're great. I mean, you the guy was a superstar. I said, I have one problem. I said, what do I say to my worst negotiator who comes in a minute before you? Because I can't bollock him and let you get away with it. He was never late again. So if, we, if you have these rules, unfortunately, and the bigger you get, the more you've got to be firm with it. If you let one person go, you'll have them all go. So suddenly you go to an office at 10 in the morning and be no negotiators. Or the ones who are there, they weren't doing, there's no help with going phone calls. They were just answering the phone because they were short-staffed. Yeah, this business is about outward-bound phone calls, not answering the phone. And the more outbound phone calls you make of quality, too many comes I look at, they look at the numbers of the outbound, not the quality, really. So they want people to talk to, you know, 10 people an hour or something crazy. You won't, the most people you can talk to a day, it's probably 30 to 40 people. It's about six people an hour to have a quality conversation. It's about six people, six, seven people an hour, right? So, that, so if I'm on the phone for five hours, I'm only still talking to 35 to 40 people which is why I can only handle about 150 applicants at any one given time. So I can guarantee I'll talk to them every single week. Anything beyond that, I've got to get more staff in or I've got to cut. Right? So if I waste these five hours a day, I won't talk to 35, 40 people a day. I'll be talking to 10 or 15. Now, I reckon if I, as a negotiator, if I could talk to 35, 40 people a day, the chance of me doing a sale a day is pretty good. If I talk to 10 people a day, it's not good. Simple maths. Absolutely. This is not rocket science. Right? So I forced them to stay in, right? So everybody, I mean, even Pete, you know, Pete to a Pete wrong to a better time to buy into it. But when he saw the results, you know, so there was a topic about one of the house departments who were really outrageous. I mean, this is such a, a bad example to the rest of the, of the company and, this, and the office. So I took them all out. A cup of coffee, and I said to them, one of the three things is going to happen. Either you're going to change, you're going to go, or I'm going to go. Ten days later, the lot resigned. Put up John Sorry, John. <laughs> from then on, the branch took off because these three people were actually demoralizing everybody. They're setting a bad example. And from then on, the branch, you know, and to me, it's important. If, you, if you're going to work for a company, have pride in the company you work for. Why do you want to work for a third-rate company? 100%. So, 
So yeah, so it took me time, but I'd go around one and one and one and one until eventually more and more people bought into it, right? Um, and once the majority of people bought into it, it left the minority had nowhere else to go. They had a choice. Either they left or they joined in the party. So suddenly, when I first got to Thompson, they were a reputation for the revolving door. They were losing staff all the time, right? And suddenly they weren't, now staff were doing well. We weren't losing staff. And the same people who were managers when I first joined, they were still there when I left four years later. But then staff, they were solid. Because if I'm an applicant, I don't want to talk to a new person every time I phone up. You know, I explain them all over again what I'm looking for. This is boring as hell. I'm trying to create relationships. So we stopped the brain drain, if you like. You know? And then, because it's like when all my negotiators at Putney, they were earning more money than any other manager. So nobody could, could tout them because they couldn't afford them. Right? Exactly the same with all the negotiators of Foxons. Where else are you going to go? Because no one else had the same level of instructions. Because the magazine was bringing in the business. All I had to do was then harness, you know, show people how to transfer those applicants into business. And once we did that, so when I first went there, there was virtually no lettings. There were just two lettings people per branch doing a minor business. I said to John, it's a £30 million a year income. Can we start treating this? So I heard somebody once say one after the interviews, they're not good enough for sales, we'll put them in lettings. No, you won't. No, no, excuse me. So, you know, we started employing really good people for lettings. And lettings became a major part of the business. But when I first got there, it was tiny. They were tucked away in the, in the, in the side of the office somewhere. They weren't even part of the main team, right? So the, the, it became interesting because lately, yeah, letting was important because it, it, that's regular income, right? So when I went over to, to Chiswick Park, I started, what I found out, we hadn't done a bank wreck for seven years. So the only time we knew the tenant hadn't paid is when the landlord complained, which is why landlords were getting upset with us and you know, we had very few people under management. So I looked at the, the management department and I found most of them were dealing with non-managed properties. So I split up into two groups, non-managed and managed. So the managed group, they would pay depending on how many landlords they could keep happy. The more landlords you could deal with and they were happy, no complaints, the more I paid you. The less you could handle, the less you got paid. So suddenly, 6.30 in the evening, managed apartments live and kicking. Because the other thing I wanted, I wanted the man, I wanted every landlord spoken to at least four times a year, just to say we've looked at your property, everything's fine, just so they know that we're on the board. The non-managed group, they would they would pay commission if they turned to transfer them into managed, but then they had to start explaining to people, yes, we can do this for you, but we have to charge because for, for organising it, which is fair enough. So suddenly, you know, they we, you know, we were getting getting paid. So they worked really well. So when I looked at the um, photographers and floor planners, right? I mean, they were doing like one a day. So I was okay. So I gave them a, a month notice, and I said, "You're going to go into four groups, right? Every month, two of you will get promoted, and two of you will get demoted, right? If you're the top group, you get paid X. We get." The second group, you get X minus one, X minus two. So your salary next month will be affected. So suddenly, we're doing two or three a day. And suddenly, we're up to date because all the managers were shouting, you know, why can't I get the floor plans through? Because no floor plans, we can't do the details. It's getting silly. Right? So the, they, they then started earning more money. They were happier. The whole thing worked really well. So, so it's looking at all, all facets of, of the actual um, business, you know. So I'm, by making the um, managers put all the, send all their valuations to Chiswick Park after 28 days, suddenly we, you know, I knew they weren't going to chase them up for 28 days, so we were chasing them up. And so suddenly, rather than Chiswick Park being seen as an enemy, which it was originally, it was seen as a benefit because they were suddenly bringing instructions back in. Because in fairness to the managers, you know, we were doing so many instructions, they didn't have time. So when I got there, there was one manager managing the whole thing. By the time we finished, four years later, 
we had three managers, upper, lower, and middle, because we and they were still all flat out doing instructions. So the instruction level went through the roof. So places like uh, South Kent were turning in, in 2001, did four million pounds. Wow. Well, why shouldn't it? If, you, if you've got eight negotiators, why shouldn't you do 50,000 a month? 100%. Tom's asked a question. So would Peter still want his team to qualify using cards rather than computers? Yes. Younger branch. Absolutely. I'll tell you why. Because looking at, the, I can check the cards in no time at all. When you, you know, if I'm flying around, I'm running 10, 12 branches, I'm flying around, and I need to quickly see what staff are doing. On a computer, how long do you think it takes to see whether they did the phone around properly or not? Do you see, did they qualify them? A lot of that, you can see the staff working, right? Most people can't type and talk at the same time, but they can write and talk. So the phone goes down, the next four or five minutes, they're typing up the notes. So that the output goes down. So managers stop looking at what staff are doing because it takes so long. Owners stop looking for the same reason. And it was a nightmare looking at it. The car system is easy. A diary in front of you. So I see somebody, I'll phone you back at four o'clock. Four o'clock, phone's answer, right? I'm looking at my diary all day long. I'm gonna phone them back. I may be 10 minutes late, but I'm gonna pick it up. I put it on the electronic diary. You know, I forget, I go out. Hey, press the person doesn't get a phone back, right? What are, what are they thinking? They're thinking, hello, what happened? So the diary to me, you know, I, every morning, every evening before I left work, I put everything onto the next page, which I hadn't achieved that day. So I had, you know, so I had my notes. So I knew when I came in the morning what I had to do. Right? No matter how hard you work, I've never left the office, I haven't done everything. It's not possible. There's always things happening. So a paper diary in front of you is easier because you're looking at it all the time. Okay, there, Tom said, I knew that would be the answer. I just wanted him to say it to win an argument with my business partner. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, but, how do um, people spend all this? Most, have you ever seen one system which works? No. No, nor have I. Whoever designed them, they, weren't, they didn't understand the business. Sooner or later, some company is going to do one which actually does work. So, I mean, just the qualifying section is tiny. You know, some of these system you look at you've got to go on three screens every time you register somebody this is just ludicrous right it's just time consuming and you're paying for it you're paying for a system which slows your business down why but the only thing it's worth is a database and whoever uses their database i was doing some work for a company and they were struggling for um landlords i had a look at their database they had 800 old landlords on there. They'd never spoken to them since. Hello. So we got hold of 800, and suddenly we were back in business again. So the only thing you can do is a database. And the only thing nobody uses it for is database. I know. It's scary, isn't it? It's just, well, you're paying for it as well. And when I ask people, why have you bought that? Do you think I ever get a sensible answer? I mean, some people actually use um a system because they, they has a good accountancy package with it so they can marry it well what's more important a county package or a, 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 a sale a county package counts only work and you're bringing the money in i mean years ago i was through to michael gasco and peace um and they went computerized and i said how's it going and he said it's great so having a factory and you go always modern machinery and there's one guy in the middle having to move the packaging by hand from one part to another part. And he said, he drives you mad. So yeah, I'm repit a lot of people use. It's one of the better ones. It's still rubbish. <laughs> I was I was gonna um, put a special mention to repit, but I won't now afterwards. <laughs> well, it's one of the better ones, isn't it? <laughs> but some of them are so bad, it's unbelievable. So let me ask you a question because I'm very conscious of time and you've been very gracious with your time. So thank you. And you've been I'm, I'm hiding from COVID at the moment. So I'm <laughs> so you got so you got you got a bit longer. So well, yeah, uh, I actually smoke a lot. So I mean COVID, yeah, probably my lungs probably aren't quite as good as they should be. Um so I'm very wary about COVID. Okay. Um fees. So um race to the bottom of a moment for a lot of estate agents. 
you were exceptional at two and a half percent and three percent. What yep. tips do you give to people that are listening and watching how to hold their fees? If you don't do the job well, you won't hold your fees. I went to one company and I asked them what their fee was. And they all said, we charge one and a half percent. I said, fine, well done. I said, if that's all you think you're worth, I'll fire the lot of you. Because you're telling me you have such a low opinion of yourself, that's all you're worth. Right? Within a month, we had the average fee from um, one, one and a half to 1.8, 1 1.9, and within two months, we added up. But if you don't do the basics well, and you don't look after people and create the, a local strong reputation, because people do talk, then you, you know, what is setting you aside? And if you look at the majority of managers who do, who go there, if you're your presentation is exactly the same as everyone else, and you're going to charge them three percent, and everybody else charges them one and a half percent, why are they going to pay three percent? I remember when 9/11 happened. I was giving a talk to the staff at the time, saying nothing's going to happen. The market's going to be fairly flat. This is what I want you to say. Somebody came in and said, "You wouldn't believe this." So I cancelled everything. Had everybody back in the next morning. We dropped everything twenty-five percent on the basis that by January everything would be back to normal. And the good, so John said, you know, couldn't believe that we had a record quarter. And he said, oh, everybody else having a miserable time. But it quite obviously, nobody, it was such a shocking event, nothing was going to happen, right? But the tragedy of life was, come January, life would be back to normal. And sure enough, and everybody took advantage of what we said. And I was flying around the branches, market, 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 market. And we were helping people make decisions. So even people who didn't listen to us thought, wow, these people know what they're doing, and next time did listen. So when we said this is what we're worth, they paid it. Because at the end of the day, if you do the job better, I'll get you a better price. What I charge people is irrelevant. I can charge you one percent, but if I only sell your house for a hundred thousand and it's worth five hundred thousand, it's the most expensive one percent you ever pay in your life. Right? If I if I get you five fifty and everybody else gets you five twenty, and I charge you three percent, I'm cheap. So what this idea of what I'm charging you is irrelevant. Is what the public finishes up with is the important bit. And if you don't think you're better and you don't think you're going to get a better price, you don't do the job better, then they're not going to pay you anyway. So the whole presentation when you're round the house is totally different. So I say to people, where are these people, why are they selling? Well, why, why are they selling? Um, oh. Well, they want to move. That's, that's good. Uh, why? Yeah. Is there urgency? Have they seen something they, you know, they've already liked? They don't know. You know, I said right on the phone, I bought this house in Hookheath years ago, and I knew from that, I spent a chat with the owner, the stunning house, he built it himself. But he, he just, a guide exchange not completed. He had a bridge loan in Arizona, a bridge loan in Docklands, and the interest rates were 13%. So I put a low offering, right? On the basis of you already got 10%, right? And basically this was November and I could exchange in 10 days, right? Otherwise he wouldn't get a, at that level, you wouldn't get a buyer probably until end of February, early March. And at 13%, this is costing him a fortune, right? I had to explain to the estate agent the situation of the vendor. Because when he said to me, poor, he's not going to take that. Yeah, and he got really quite indignant with me as well. I mean, rude is, you know, why be rude? Don't, you know, is there a law saying you can't put up an offer? Right? So I explained to him. Oh, he said, oh, oh dear, oh dear. So I'd go up a little bit, but not a lot. And the deal was done. If you got to, how can you advise people if you don't know what, what they're trying to achieve? How can you advise them what to, to buy and how to buy if you don't understand what, where they want to go? Usually, are they going to go to Birmingham or Brighton? If you don't know the difference, I mean, every single person has had their time waiting by editions, showing them stock they're going to buy in a million years. And then the agent can't understand why the person won't talk to them again, because you've just wasted four hours of my life. If you qualify them properly, it doesn't happen. And they'll want to talk to you again. They'll want to pay the fee. There won't be a problem. 100%. One final question from you. You've worked with loads of high performers. Yeah. What are the qualities of the high performers that you've worked with? 
the one standout is pride. The one standout thing is everybody did really well. It mattered to them that the person, it was their own, it was their own weakness, if you like, that it was important to them that the person thought they were really good at what they did. The people who didn't work well in this business is somebody who wouldn't pick up the phone and wouldn't talk to somebody unless they could see a pound sign. So the hard salesperson didn't doesn't work because you don't because you, you're doing a lot of work to establish a reputation to create more instructions, which you won't directly get paid for, but you will. Right. So I mean, poor Sheer Axon, I used to pay her more commission than anybody else because she got me more instructions than anybody else, but she did fewer sales. But she was worth it because she got me more instructions. Right. And she used to be really upset with people's phone up and say, I'm really sorry I didn't buy it through you. I said, that's great. Because they'll, we made a fortune for people who didn't buy from us coming back to sell through us. Every applicant you take on today is going to move. First time buyer is going to move within three years. Yeah, do you want their instruction? Don't you? If you look after them, even if they buy from another else and you stand out from the crowd, you'll get them in three years' time. Won't cost you any money. So yeah, everyone was pride. Absolutely, it wasn't the money. The money was not the motivator. The money was the byproduct. And I said to all the staff. The best sports people, right? whether you paid them a pound or 10,000 pounds, would re react the same way, would play the same same way. It was the do they got paid a lot because every day they went out and performed. And so the guys who did really well performed every day from their own personal pride. The byproduct was the money. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, Michelle's made a point here saying stage agents' pay is very low today which is very demotivating and doesn't get the right quality of people. Well, if you don't sell any houses, you're not going to public uh, company can only pay you if they've got an income coming in. So I can explain that to my staff, right? Um, one company I had, I had a look at, I actually did a presentation explaining why they just lost 600,000 pounds in the last seven months. And this thing's changed. Yeah. They're, they're, nobody would have a job. So Michelle, why are you getting, you know, this is the only selling job where you've got the stock and the applicant. There's no cold calling. You're just putting the two and two together. Now, if you're working for a company which doesn't have the stock, get out of the company and go up for one with, or start understanding how, start treating people the way you'd want to be treated, create a much better personal reputation, start getting decent stock on. But you should, if you're there for 10 hours a day, 50 hours a week, can you explain to me how you can go a week without a sale? Well, looking at, I see a lot of stuff. If you want to see the problem, buy a mirror and have a look at it. Because there it is. Right? You you should expect yourself to be able to do. I don't understand how you can spend a week doing nothing. I generally don't. What are you saying to people? Don't whatever you do, don't you know, stay home, don't buy anything. So, but I made people. But I learned a few things, especially about canes. Right? When I first started as a negotiator. No matter what the applicant wanted to talk about, I got my tiny bit of knowledge into the phone call. It's almost like my English A-level. I did 14 books. And I had 10 quotes of 14 books. No matter what the question was, these 10 quotes had to go in. That's all I had. Right? And so by forcing this, you know, forcing into it, you know, when I do talk to the Foxes about the market, what made it rise, what made it fall, I used to force them to, to actually um, talk about it. And most people say to me, hang on, this is not going to work. We deal with people with economics degrees. I said, they're the easiest people. Because for some reason, they don't apply what they know to their own personal life. And once I explain to them the impact interest rates have on inflation or inflation on interest rates, then suddenly, oh, God. Right? And the impact interest rates have on, you know, people think interest rates have an impact on house prices. So they think if interest rates go down, house prices go up. That's nonsense. In the 1970s, interest rates were going through the roof and house prices went up as well. Right? In the early 90s, interest rates were falling and house prices were still falling. They affect the trend, they don't make the trend. Now, if you start talking, you're dealing with an educated public here. If you start talking to people about why things happen and about what is like to happen in the future, it gives them the confidence to make a compromise and make a decision. And they're also, they're more likely then to open up to you to tell you exactly where they want to live and you know, so yeah, it's up to us to show that we that we're not just house salespeople. We understand the business we're in, but to 
And it takes a lot of confidence to be able to do this. So as an owner or as a manager, you've got area manager, you've got to really work with your staff to give them this confidence, to get them to do it. Because once they start getting really positive impact out of it, feedback out of it, oh, right here. Right? Suddenly their life changes. Adrian is Australian girl, she was with Lessings in Islington. I thought she'd be really good, nothing's happening at all. So I went to see her. Right? So I said, what is the problem? So chat, chat, chat. I said, look, you've got to understand what they've been to see for you to, and why they returned it, rejected it. So you can understand whether whether it was feasible and what they're like to want to buy. Right? I great believe that everybody's got one thing they won't compromise on. If you know what it is, they can ask you for dozens of things. You show them the one thing they won't compromise on, everything else gets out, it changes quite dramatically. Right? So I'm going to say next time I went there, all she's doing is just writing sales sheets out. Just ridiculous. That's it. Okay. So how's it? She says, quite right. I I tell them I'm not going to go out with you unless you uh, beat up with other agents and you tell me what you've been to see. Then I'll show you. And she 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 took what I said to her far far further than I'd ever do it, right? But she wouldn't go out with them unless you know she unless she understood unless they had been out viewing and she could understand why they rejected something and therefore what they like to take. And she was just literally writing everything. But it was giving her the confidence to go and do it. Right? How many agents close? How many agents actually turn around and say you should buy that? The amount of sales I did by seeing people, I know it's not perfect, but if that is the top of your budget, that's the closest you're going to get. Either that or you've got to move to this town here. But you, you are not. Now, if I build up that respect, they'll take it. Right? No agent closes. When was the last time you moved and somebody close, you know, said to you, you should buy this? Why? But you're right, yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. the only sales force, it never closes. Yeah. Flat in Wandsworth, there's a guy, he didn't want to live in Wandsworth, under any circumstances, right? Because from Putney, we were doing Southfield, Wandsworth, even Kingston Hill, right? But he wanted a big living room. I understood he wanted a big living room. So I phoned him next day, I said, right, I tell you, you're going to buy that. He said, no, no, no. I said, pardon? What do you mean, no? He said, well, I want a bigger living room. I said, you will not, it's a big living room I'm seeing for nine months. You are not going to get a bigger living room. If you do not buy this, you'll be renting the next six months. And by which time you can't afford to buy anything because house prices are moving. And this is the reason why. Sale done. Right? You've got here. You should be able to, if you're not in a situation to be able to say to somebody you should buy that or shouldn't buy it, well then, what are you doing? Uh, we should be guiding people. We've, we're there to hold them by the hand and lead them through a fog to where they want to go. It may take me four or five phone calls to explain what's going on in the market and give them the confidence to buy now rather than wait for a year. It may take me a better time to make understand that you can't get a four-bedroom house in the area they want, but, the, but you can't buy three and you've only got two children. Right? So it may take me a bit of time, but I will be working with an applicant until they eventually go one way or the other. But I'm not putting him in the car for no reason. You, know, you should have more self-respect for yourself than to. If you're going to go on a viewing, you've got to believe that this is something the applicant wants to should be interested in, not with a bit. You know, oh, keeps the manager happy, keeps the owner happy because I've got a lot of viewings tonight. And most people, who are they viewing? They're viewing the new applicants. And how many new applicants buy, buy in the first week of looking? Right? The guy's been looking for two months. He's the person you want to get out of the car. So, so you set your, your, your viewings up with new applicants and wonder why you're doing no sales. Okay. Well, on that point of gold, we are going to say thank you very much. Nice talking to you. I'm really grateful for your time. I absolutely love your passion, your energy. Um, and thank you for sharing so many things. And I could carry on talking for the next two hours because I'm just um, absolutely fascinated. Um, but thank you so much. People ask me questions. I mean, they ask me via LinkedIn. I'm more than happy. Um, yeah. I mean, I just think it's almost an embarrassment. I refuse to tell people I was an estate agent because the reputation of the industry is that bad.
But if you have the courage, you can elevate it. And if you earn people's respect, it is an amazing job because you are making, you watch the people's faces when you when you actually get them to make that final decision and their faces light up. It's many, you, know, you see them move into somewhere, you know, and you get them moved in, in a third of the time they do themselves. You have a value. At that point, you have a value. If you're just going to show for them around, hope they make a decision, you have no value at all. And not only that, thousands of people can do that. So what are you worth, Michelle? That's why you don't earn any money. Okay, right. So um, now I've got some lovely comments. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Definitely need a part two. Um, a fantastic guest. So thank you so much. Thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching on replay. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to be joined by Spencer Lawrence of Paramount, who I regard as one of the best letting agents in the UK. And then in the evening, I'm joined by David Greenspan, who is a Canadian agent who we heard at the NAR conference in San Francisco last year. So it's going to be eight o'clock tomorrow evening. Peter, thank you so much for being an amazing guest. I would love to have you back on the game because I think there's so much more um, everybody can learn from you. Um, have a great time. Um, thank you so much. And bye-bye, everybody. Have a good afternoon. Okay. Cheers, David. Ciao, ciao, everybody.